when I discovered the human givens and started looking at, you know, particularly what are the emotional needs, it became so obvious that a classroom is the perfect place to use those needs. I mean, it just makes absolute logical sense um, that if a child feels secure in your classroom and feels that they are getting the attention from me and they've got the time where they can stand up and be the focus of our attention, you've got them. Hello, and welcome to our Ask the Expert podcast series. I'm Julia Wellstead, and I'm part of the HG team. Now, today we have Pat Capel joining us to talk about how using the human givens approach in the classroom will help the next generation to thrive. As well as being an HG practitioner, Pat has been working as a secondary school teacher for over 25 years, both in the classroom as a classroom teacher and also working with children with special educational needs. Now, over this time, Pat became increasingly aware that a growing number of those around him, both adults and children, didn't have the necessary skills or resources to cope in today's demanding world. And he realized that by combining what he'd learned from his HG training with his existing teaching knowledge and skills, he could make a profound difference to people's lives. Hello, Pat. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. That's lovely. And I just thought, I'm, I'm actually catching a, a, an accent there. So I just thought, could you tell us a bit more about your background? Where are you from and how, how did you get into teaching? And um, I'm, well, as you can hear, I'm, I'm a South African by birth. Um, and I was there till uh, I was just over 30. Um, so I trained in South Africa as a secondary school teacher uh, with a degree in psychology and speech and drama, and then did a postgrad in counseling psychology. Because um, in South Africa, if you want to be a secondary school teacher, you've got to have two subjects. And right. psychology was almost, was always my favorite. Yeah. So I then had um, English as my second subject. Um, but ultimately, over time, I became an English teacher with the psychology taking a back seat. Um, I mean, as in, in this country, those kind of jobs in secondary schools are few and far between. Yes, yes. Um, but it must have been very, very useful to have the oh, psychology, even, even though you weren't using it per se. If, if oh, absolutely. You weren't um, using it officially, I suppose. Yeah. No, um, I did occasionally, and I started as a school counsellor. I did a, um, a sabbatical leave, and that was my first full-time job in a school, which was absolutely exhilarating. Um, but over time, you know, just like in this country, in South Africa, you'll have a registered class or a tutor group. So you are using the skills yes. all the time. And of course, those of us with a bit more background in it, um, we tend to get leaned on quite heavily by the kids and by our colleagues, so that the shift back into the human givens really was quite a natural progression. It wasn't, I don't think it was anything that took me by surprise. Yeah, and, and when did you first come across human givens? Uh, so my ex-head of department, uh, who's a very good friend of mine, his wife trained and she sat me down one evening and said, come on, I think this is going to be your bag. Um, have a look. And at that point, I'd already done some work in a huge comprehensive in Wembley, um, working with boys with emotional behavioral difficulties. And I'd moved into a, a very high achieving, high ranking independent boys school. And 
again, it all just seemed to make sense and fit it into place. And I was very lucky in that the school agreed and they could see the value in it. And they basically paid for me to train. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, yes. I, was, I was really, really lucky. Um, yes, yeah, so that's how it came about. Huh. I'm thinking that might tie in with this first question, actually. What, what difference have you noticed in levels of emotional well-being in schools over that span of your career? Well, when I started here in the UK, um, I mean, this was a school of over 800 boys, and we had one counsellor who came in for a few hours once a week. Wow, that wasn't going to cover that, much. Yeah, whereas that same school now, I'm not there anymore, but that same school now, they've got two full-time counsellors. So and they, do you think that's a reflection of prob the, prob the level of problems people are having? Um, or, yes. Or of enlightenment about the need it's, for... It's a bit of, it's a bit a bit of, of both. both. Yeah. Um, and I think it also depends on um, what funds are available. Uh, it depends on the mindset of those people making decisions as to where they're going to spend their money. Um, and if you've got, you know, a supportive head and a supportive governing body and possibly even teachers who are saying, you know, we need this, then the, the provision can be a bit better. But I think there are some schools out there who they, they just haven't got the money. Um, and of course, you know, it's all very well the government saying we're going to train all new teachers in identifying basic mental health problems. But then what are you going to do? Yeah. I just don't think, you know, this starts at the top. And I mean, at government level, that there, there simply isn't enough money to provide the support that is needed. Mm. Goodness me. So in, in terms of uh, when you first started to notice uh, adults and children not coping at school what were the signs what, what what were the sort of signs and symptoms of that um well with the kids so if we're talking sort of post 2000 you know this is just before the whole onslaught of the social media and at that point it was things like just the day-to-day -day stresses of the demands of a very busy curriculum with a very heavy demand on their time after hours the expectation that they must do lots of homework for one thing and then get involved in extracurricular activities. So the, the, the demands on the kids' time was a major, major problem. Yeah. And then on top of that, um, the stresses of the exams, which over the last 19 years since I moved to the UK, I've noticed particularly at GCSE, the exams are becoming much more formulaic, um, much more almost tick boxy. And yep. that actually is, I think, for a lot of kids, a lot more stressful than um, the, the old fashioned type exams, which were, you know, in, in my subject, English, a lot more creative. Um, I, yes, I absolutely concur. Uh, I, I have three sons and my youngest, when he, in his final couple of years at school which was a few years ago now he was absolutely shocked and really disappointed that the teachers were actually cutting out elements of the course because they knew it wasn't going to come up in the exam yeah and Fenning was saying but I want to learn that stuff yeah. <laughs> oh no you don't need it <laughs> no, in just a GCSE English literature at the moment most of the kids are now doing something like um and Hyde or A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I've taught kids with dyslexia for the last sort of 10, 15 years. And 
these kids just find that stuff unintelligible. And, you know, we used to have the good old standard of mice and men, which is a great story. It's easy to understand. It raises all sorts of issues. And then it was decided, you know, this American stuff isn't good enough for an English curriculum. And it's no longer taught. So you've now got these, you know, these dyslexic kids who are expected to learn quotes from Dickens, from Shakespeare, regurgitated all in the exam, on top of having to learn that's a verb, that's a simile, that's a noun phrase, and throw that into the exam. It's frightening for them. Um, And, you know, there are marks for spelling, grammar, punctuation. Yes, I can understand it's important to have that. But for some of these kids, they're never going to be able to spot the spelling mistake. And yet they know they're going into that exam having lost these marks immediately. Yes, um, and, 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 it's, and it's squeezing out the creative aspect. Absolutely. absolutely squeezes it out. And I don't know any English teachers, and I'd love to be proven wrong here, I don't know any English teachers who find the current GCSEs satisfying. And mm. it's become so formulaic that um, the school that I've just left, we started in year seven, preparing them for what the exam was going to look like, just so that when they get there in year 11, they can be as calm as possible in the exam and not get freaked out by it. Now, if you've got to make make time in year seven to teach the formulaic stuff needed in year 11, how much of the good old-fashioned fun are these kids missing out on? So that's four or five years in advance. Yeah. You're teaching them that. Yeah. And, you know, the school That's that I'm Apart that from anything else, it might have changed by then. Of course. But, you know, the, the, when, you're, when you're dealing with a class of, you know, more than half of them with dyslexic type issues, yeah. you need to start early to give them any chance of doing anything worthwhile in that exam. Now, there's, I've picked up something there. More than half have dyslexic type issues. Is that... Yeah, that was the school yes. I was teaching at yes. where... Um, I mean, currently the school is going for um, the dyslexia-friendly accreditation because that's kind of the market is at, you know, these these children who do find um, reading and writing a little tricky. Now, if you find reading difficult and you throw them something like a Christmas carol or Jack and Hyde, um, it's gobbledygook. And how did incorporating Human Givens help? Well, there's a little article on my website, on the blog, where I, I go through the uh, basic human needs, the emotional needs, and explain how I incorporate that into the classroom. I'll just mention that your website is called, correct me if I'm wrong, westonepsychotherapy.com. That's correct. And the one is... The, the one is the numeric. Yeah, numeric. Yeah. There's quite a lot on there that I've written that's aimed particularly at... Um, sort of the teenager age group and their parents. Um, so I'm hoping people might find that worthwhile. But yeah, so I, I, when I discovered the human givens and started looking at, you know, particularly what are the emotional needs, it became so obvious that a classroom is the perfect place to use those needs. I mean, it just makes absolute logical sense um, that if a child feels secure in your classroom, and feels that they are getting the attention from me, and they've got the time where they can stand up and be the focus of our attention, you've got them. Yeah. 
And if so they there you've got you, you've got two immediately there. Security yeah. and attention are yeah. two of our needs. Yes. Yeah. And if if you've if you've got the child in the classroom feeling I'm worthy, I belong here, I'm being noticed, I'm getting yeah. the chance to display my expertise. And you know, I'm a great believer in get something wrong, you know, fail at something. And as long as you have the confidence to understand why you failed at it, how you can fix it, and how to go forward, failing actually becomes the most wonderful learning mechanism. Yeah, that's building and resilience, yes. Absolutely. And I think every every child that I've taught will probably say to you, one of the things that he says all the time is the only time your marks matter is on that sheet of paper you get in August at the end of year 11. Up to that point, any mark is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, but it, it is relevant only in you need to understand how I got that, why I got it, so what you am can I fix that, it. and what, can, what do I need to fix. Yeah. The fail and fix. Absolutely. Cycle. Yeah. yeah. And it takes, you know, for me as a teacher, what I had to learn was slow down. And there is no point expecting a child in the classroom to write a 500-word essay if they can't write a 100-word paragraph. They can't write the 100-word paragraph if they can't write a decent sentence. So if you go right back, start at the beginning, give them the skills to write a sentence with confidence, they can write a paragraph, and so you build and you build and you build. And I find that works because then you're giving them the confidence, you're giving them the autonomy, you're giving them the, um, what's the word, the, yeah, just the confidence to yes. stack in. Well, and also that the, the basic building blocks, the foundations. Yeah, absolutely. Upon which you can then write a novel or whatever you want to do. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and for the teacher, I've got to be confident enough to do that. And I think sometimes the classroom teacher is so driven and focused on produce the work, show your senior managers that you've made them do X, Y, and Z. But sometimes we've got to say to our senior managers, wait a minute, I'm not gonna make them do that particular task if they don't know how to do the smaller task first. Yeah. So things like um, what I decided to do, and I was very lucky in that I had the support of my head of department, um, I decided I was only going to set homework if I knew what the purpose of that homework was. And if I could ex explain to the class, this is why I'm asking you to do this particular piece of work. But we never start, we never set the homework if we haven't started it together in the classroom, where they have the freedom to ask, the freedom to make the mistake in the classroom. Otherwise, they go home and all they're doing is rehearsing an error. And to unpick yep. that rehearsed error takes so long. Whereas if you can rehearse the real thing in class with guidance, then, you know, they can only be successful. So would you say you're almost, you're, it sounds like you're using our, our RIGAR um, framework there, really. You're doing the rehearsal aspect of it. Oh, all the so, time. Uh, yes, yes. You, you know, RIGAR, again, this is why I think the human givens is such a wonderful model for the classroom. because. As a teacher, if I haven't got rapport with the kids in front of me, what's the point? Yeah. So you've got to build up that rapport in the first place. You need the information. What does the child know? What doesn't he know? Um, what is the goal? I want you to be able to write a decent paragraph. 
well, how am I gonna do that? Well, can you write a sentence? Do you know the novel? Do you understand the poem? And so you build and build and build. Accessing the resources, yes, yes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And then it's agreeing what you're doing and then rehearsing it. And then you rehearse it, yeah. Do you have any particular examples of perhaps a child who was spectacularly helped by this, by your teaching approach or? How much time time do I have? (laughs) (laughs) I think think I'm confident enough to say that um, there will be a vast number of kids who have gone through my classes in the last um, 10 or so years when I first started really using this method. I mean, what, what I realized was I was using parts of the method anyway. And I think any decent teacher is using part of this method anyway without actually understanding this is part of a, of a process, part of a, a written down formula. To me, one, one beauty of the human givens approach is that it makes it's good common sense. It is absolute common sense. And I think any teacher will, if they looked at it, will realize, oh, yes, I do that. I do that. I do that. Oh, I touch on that. Maybe I need to do a bit more of that. But, you know, I, I, if we just look at it from a Marks point of view, where I would be given um, the smaller, weaker classes, and I use that term weaker relatively, it was a high achieving school. And the results we were getting at the end, because ultimately that's, that's how success in a school is measured. What are the results? Um, the results in the small classes were sometimes better than the results in the classes that were, if we can say, higher up the pecking order. But, you know, if you've yes. got a class of eight versus a class of 24, you should be getting better results anyway. Yeah. Yes, of course. There's, there's yeah. more attention, uh, yeah. more, more energy and attention that you can give to each child. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this, the school that I've just finished, I was lucky that... Um, one of my classes, there were four. Now, what you can do in an hour with four kids is incredible. And you now I would, I would come home and, and say, I've never found teaching to be so exhausting, but at the same time, so rewarding. It was, mm-hmm. it was absolutely incredible just watching these little step-by-step increments, um, just by slowing them down, making them feel, I can do this. Um, and then once they've realized I can do this, well, off they go. Yeah. Yeah. So that leads me on to the next question, which is a, a, a bit of a biggie. Why is school important? You know, if, if, and I, I would put that in the context of what you've just said, if, if having four kids makes teaching so much more effective than having maybe 30 kids in the class, perhaps going all the way and doing homeschooling is the ultimate. What's important about the school setting? Um, Yeah, I'm not a fan of homeschooling in principle. Um, I can understand that there are certain situations where it's the only option. You know, what do schools give all of us? Well, it's a community. And I think if a child is in a classroom and they're struggling, they're going to realize very quickly, I'm not the only one. And so it gives them perspective things like you know, basic life skills that a classroom teaches you. You know, you can't always be the center of attention. So they're learning turn-taking. They're learning how to work cooperatively. Um, I do remember, um, this goes back a long, long time, I had a, um, a young boy who was um, difficult, but he was a walking dictionary. And he became the classroom dictionary. And if ever we couldn't spell a word... I would call on him and he could spell it. 
Now, suddenly, yes. this boy who'd been a bit of an outsider suddenly gets status within his group. He suddenly feels better about himself. And we were all winners because this kid was happy to come across as a bit of a nerd by knowing every word in the dictionary and he could spell it and give you a definition. Yeah, fantastic. Now you don't get yes. that. You don't get that if you're at home on your own. So in terms of academic learning, but also developing social skills, relationships, communication, and that sense of achievement and status. Yeah, definitely. School, school yes. A, a bit like I say with work, uh, you know, if it, it, it's a huge part of our lives. And if it's working well, we're getting a lot of our needs met there. Absolutely. And school could be said yeah. to be the same. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I mean, the, one of my classic arguments, which, you know, I think any teacher in a school that's got a very strict uniform policy is going to have this where, why do I have to wear a uniform? What's the point? And my answer to that always is, well, look at the way I'm dressed. I'm wearing a kind of uniform. Yeah. Look at the way people dress who work in the city. They expect it to wear a certain style of clothing. But I might say to you, you need to tuck your shirt in and wear a tie, but I can't tell you how to think. And it's about learning does the uniform really matter? No, it doesn't. But what my teacher cannot do is control how I think and how I respond. Now, schools teach you that there are certain things you simply have to just get on with. And there are other things where I have got the freedom to express myself, to try my own things, to experiment within that safety net that is a school where there is a really good support network. Yeah. And kids do like boundaries, don't they? So uh, boundaries, maybe the wrong word, but um, a framework. I think boundaries is a good word. I like that. Um, because you know, if, if you don't have boundaries, you, you never learn what is acceptable behavior in a certain context. Yeah. Um, and you know, absolutely. You talk to your your classmates out in the playground in a certain way. You'll learn really, really quickly. That kind of talk is not appropriate in a formal classroom situation. Or if you're writing a letter to your head teacher requesting a change in the uniform, yeah. you know, that's all about context and school teachers' context. Mm -hmm. uh, switching to teachers now. Obviously, they're getting stressed as well. Are teachers taught or do they learn how to approach and listen to students' problems? Is it think, their responsibility? I think it's getting better. Yeah. Um, you know, so often the normal classroom teacher is the first port of call for a distressed child. The teacher they really get on with, the teacher they really like. That's going to be the person, the child who's feeling a little uneasy he or she is going to go to their favorite teacher, I think. Yeah. Um, and I did a, um, a talk for a school last year where I explained to them, well, when that happens, you know, you're not a trained counselor, but what can you do? And it's about just asking the appropriate questions and then encouraging the child to either go and see the school counselor or allowing you as the teacher to mention it to somebody else and get further advice. Obviously, if there's a safeguarding issue, all sorts of systems kick in. And we are all, you know, we all have to know exactly what to do if it's a safeguarding issue. But a lot of a lot of classroom teachers do not have the expertise or the time 
to deal with the emotional baggage that a child brings to school. You know, the teachers are under so much pressure to get through a syllabus, to tick certain boxes, hit certain targets. And as you've said, teachers these days are so stressed out, um, their own psychological needs aren't being cared for by the school oh. environment. How on earth are they going to be able yeah. to deal with the kids? Yes, yes, um, yes. So it's it's a difficult situation where there are teachers out there who are doing their best and are doing the most fantastic job. And there are schools out there doing their best and doing the most fantastic job. But sadly, I think the current pressures on the typical classroom teacher are such that he or she probably doesn't have the capacity to be effective in this area. But then again, are we not expecting too much if we expect them to be? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where having counsellors, which was where you came in with the school that had one part-time counsellor that now has two full-time. Yeah. Um, I think there's still schools out there who probably don't have. Don't have, yeah. And, you know, when they're cutting costs where they can't even fix, you know, broken toilets in the school, where are they going to get the money for a counsellor? Yeah. Um, so it does, this is a, you know, and you can, you know, government can say what they like until we see money that is ring fenced for mental health in the schools where the schools have access and not just access in a week's time, but immediate access if they need it. Um, I think this problem is not going to go away. It's going to get bigger and bigger. So the, in terms of staff development, I think you've probably said it really, but, uh, are teachers supported to gain additional training or is there just not the time uh, for mental health and well-being training, both for themselves and for their pupils? Uh, so for this, I can only use my own experience. I, I, I wouldn't want to make a generalized statement, but in my experience, you know, staff training days very often are so heavily focused on what do we need to show we've done in order to make sure we pass the next inspection that to free up time to focus on things like mental health training for the staff is a very brave decision for a school to make. And there are schools who are doing it. Mm. I've been into schools where I've done training for staff on mental health. Um, at my previous school, I did a couple of um, staff training days where not the whole day, but I might have an hour or two where I could focus on um, mental health issues for the staff. But whether all schools are doing that, that I don't know. Yeah. So there's a lot of firefighting go on, uh, going on, really, isn't there? I think uh, so. Yeah. Reactive, uh, how yeah. to get the marks, yes. Yeah. Which again, it, it kind of, uh, there's an echo there in my head with you taking enough time to get the foundations of writing a sentence in order that the children can then go on and write essays. And there's an echo there in my mind with this situation where the poor teachers are having to firefight the whole time and make sure the grades are right, rather than getting the emotional and well-being needs and resources sorted, which would then produce those results. Well, what's that wonderful quote? Is it something like, uh, learning is an emotional business? Yes, something like that. <laughs> something like that. Yes. And, you know, we all know that, you know, if we're sitting there panicking and the middle is going bonkers, we're not going to learn a thing. Not, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And if the classroom environment isn't calm and safe, the child, the child who's going through some kind of difficulty isn't going to be learning. And for some of these kids who do come from quite disruptive homes or where things at home aren't just quite what they should be, sometimes school becomes the place of escape or sometimes school becomes the quiet, calm place for them. And I think if we can all aim to do that, they're going to learn. But there's, you know, that other wonderful line I use all the time, you know, what do they tell you on the airplanes? Fit your own gas mask before you fit somebody else's. And if, if the teacher isn't feeling supported and calm and in control, they're not going to be nearly as effective as they could be. And we all, I think, teachers, senior management, and ultimately the government need to acknowledge we need to be looking after our teachers' mental health a lot better than we are at the moment. Something you said just then brought me on to this next question, which is, given that we're all unique, every child will find different ways to get their emotional needs met. How can schools and teachers make sure that that's happening and that that the children understand on some level that they have emotional needs and importantly, that they have resources. Well, again, I think if you're in a, in a huge class, you know, with 25 plus kids, that's going to be quite difficult. And I think the only thing that teachers could do is if we know what the emotional needs are, what our innate skills are, um, the Rigar model, if, if we've got that structure in our, in our head, going into a classroom, we, I think, have a lot more power than to do whatever we can to try and make sure that those needs are being met. And then if the school, you know, on the PSHE program, for argument's sake, could dedicate some time educating the children as to this is what your needs are, this is what you need to be looking for, these are the the resources you have or should have, a bit of psychoeducation in the school would not go amiss. That sort of psychoeducation, I certainly find with clients, can be pretty damn quick. And, and really powerful. Yes. Um, I, you know, I've done talks to GCC and, and, and A-level kids in the build-up to exams about exam stress and what causes it and how to recognize it, the importance of sleep and, and all that. And uh, I've done group guided imagery um, where we go on a bit of a walk and they find it so powerful where, you know, one boy came to me after his one exam and said, I felt the panic coming and I reached for the stone in my pocket, which is something we did in the guided imagery. And it just shows it works. But, But the school needs to have the time to allow somebody to stand up and dedicate half an hour, an hour, for this kind of psychoeducation because it, it is so quick and so powerful. And a lot of the kids, little sound bites they will have with them forever. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this resonates with Gareth Hughes, another of our colleagues who works with students, I think at Derby University, yeah. um, is doing very similar things for, for students at university, getting those sound bites and those ideas and those metaphors that can be grasped when required. Absolutely. I mean, that's. So I mean, those people who can't go on his training day, the, um, the webinar is, is so good. I mean, he is, you know, his, his training day is absolutely fantastic. Yes. Um, and there's so much that what he says is perfect for a school environment. And that's anxiety and learning, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But also, you're quite right, the webinar is fabulous because he, he distills it down very, very clearly. 
Yeah. I think I think it's about not even an hour long, and it's it's gold dust. It's really good. Now moving on to, uh, we've got a question here about parents and teachers working together and supporting each other more effectively. Is is there a need to bridge that gap, or is that is that much better than it used to be? Because obviously both spend a lot of time with children. And uh, yeah, again, you know, purely anecdotally, um, one school came and asked me to do a talk on anxiety for the parents. Uh, which was done after hours, so it was you know it was easy for the parents to get to. I mean you know most parents these days, you know they they're working really hard and have they got the time to pop into school during school hours? Probably not. Yeah. Um, but for me, parent, child, and school that triangle is is vital, um, and we be, we need to be working together. You know so often anxiety in a, in a child can be because are they doing the subjects that they want to do or they're doing the subjects that their parents want them to do? Huh, are, yes, they, very... are, they, are they doing the subjects that we as the school have said they should do because we know that's where they're going to get better marks? Um, and I think when we all work together and we can kind of manage the expectation of this is what you're good at, this is what you enjoy, because if you're good at something and you enjoy it, you're going to put more effort into it. The experience of learning it is going to be that much more rewarding. You should then end up getting better grades and better marks. But we have got, I think everybody will agree that we do have, unfortunately, uh, parents who are absent, um, either through they're just working so hard to keep the family together, to keep the food going, to keep the bills paid, or they just, unfortunately, are just not that bothered. They hand their kids over to the school and expect the school to get on with it. I, yes, I think that the, there's, a, there's an expectation there that, uh, or a mindset, should I say, that we chuck our kids into school and all that education stuff happens there and it's a separate thing. Yeah, so I, it's I, really br bridging that gap and getting the parents to work together with the teachers. Well, it's, it's, it's the best alternative. And, you know, having, having a dialogue with parents is is vital um, but you know that sometimes leads to another problem where parents are emailing teachers at 10 o'clock at night and expecting a response of course yes <laughs> yes um, it swings too far the other way yeah yes and and there are some schools who have made the decision and the parents are aware of this that come a certain time in the evening um, the emails get turned off and you know you as a parent might email in at 10 o'clock at night but the staff member will only get that email when they log on, you know, after a certain time tomorrow morning. Yeah. Now, that, I think, is a fantastic idea from the schools, because why should the teacher be on call at 10 o'clock at night? Absolutely. And that's but just raising again, stress levels and exhaustion levels for the teachers, which is not helping anybody. Well, I've, I've always had a, a policy, and my school has always known this, that I do not have my work email on my personal phone. Yeah, so right. if I'm not at school, I'm not getting the email. Quite right too, yes. I think the school here, locally here, is the same actually. Yeah, um, and I think we all just, I think teachers need to at some point stand up and say, I'm not going to be answerable after a certain time of the day. And I think, you know, five o'clock, is that too early? I don't think so. They've been at it since eight. Absolutely. Um, they're going to go home yeah. and do some marking. Uh, why should they also then have to worry about an email? We at Human Givens provide in-house training workshops about learning and anxiety to schools who offer it. 
and that's for both teachers and parents. Uh, is, I'm not sure actually, Pat, is that something you're involved in? I've kind done of... a few of those and I've got yeah. another one booked in uh, in the new academic year. And, you know, for some parents, and I use the human givens model, obviously, and for some parents, they do find it fascinating. And I always say to them, you know, you as a parent, you are the, the model, you the role model. And what your child needs to see in you is, you know, that you are calm, that, that you are rational, that you aren't getting yourself wound up. The amount of times I get a parent coming to me to say, you know, this is in my, in my private practice, oh, my child is really stressed out about the exams and blah, blah, blah. And what becomes really obvious, it's not the child, it's the parents. Once the parent calms down, the child is so much calmer. And, you know, if we can teach parents the role that they are playing, in this, I think we ultimately were going to lead to much happier families. The exam season for some families is so stressful. And um, the amount of work I've done with families on just how to keep the stress levels down at exam time, um, you know, it's, they all need it. And what, yeah. once they get it and they hear it and they understand it and the, the home becomes calmer, you know, my work is done. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, because being calm and able to think clearly is where it's at, isn't it? So, yeah. Pat, if you could give one top tip to teachers, what would that be? And look after yourself. I think that at the moment is probably the most important. Because um, if you're not, if you aren't looking after yourself and getting your own needs met, um, how on earth are you going to be able to look after somebody else? And of course, in many cases, teachers are, are also parents. So yes. they also have families and children to look after. I mean, how parents who are teachers while their own kids are doing GCSEs or A-levels, I mean, the stress on that must be horrendous. Yeah. But uh, yeah, absolutely. If there's one tip, it is, you know, take care of yourself. Um, Realise your limitations. Check your own capacity. Um, are there any gaps in your needs? Are there any skills that you know you could improve and develop that makes your day-to-day -day functioning at school as calm as possible? I mean, but there's always going to be those moments in, a, in the academic year that are horrendously difficult. You know, report season, when you're having to churn out report after report after report um, while still teaching and marking. Um, and very often these seasons come at a time of schools doing their internal exams. So there are always oh, crunch times yes. when you can't escape that. You've just got to get the work done. But when that season is over, is there something to look forward to that's going to allow you to recharge your batteries, come back down to earth, uh, and then get ready for the next onslaught? But it is, look after yourself is the, is the most important thing. And a useful, I don't know if you, but I find it very useful to use the emotional needs audit on myself every so often. Absolutely. Um, which is, as it suggests, an audit of one's needs. Um, yeah. And that's something that's on our um, Human Givens Institute website. And it's just a set of simple questions that really, to me, teases out if I'm feeling anxious or stressed, rather than that being an amorphous cloud of anxiety it begins to tease out what's missing and what could be addressed and helped. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, you know, if, if there is a difficulty and if you can see, oh, that, you know, there's a, a gap there is to acknowledge that gap in the first place and admit to yourself, okay, there is where the hole is. Yeah. 
because um, once you've acknowledged it, you're already on on route to making sure that you get it it's met. Yes. Um, but if you just keep pushing it away and, and don't think about it, it just creates a much much bigger problem in the long run. Absolutely, yes. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a great chat for me. The information I'm sure will be useful to all listeners, whether they're teachers, parents, anyone working with children and teenagers. We might even have some kids listening. That would be great. Well, I, I really hope they are, um, because I, I do think that you know a lot of kids these days they don't realize just how much power they have and you know when you realize just what you can do and what your potential is you know the world's your oyster um but they're they are so often so bogged down by all this extra rubbish that's around them and being able to cut through that um is a great skill and i think by listening to this going to have a read what's out there looking at some of the blogs on my page, I think some of them are going to realize, you know, I, I've actually got a lot more control than I thought I had. Thank you so much, Pat. That's fantastic. Just as a part of my wrap-up of the podcast here, I just want to mention that Human Givens have created a free downloadable poster, and you can download this and display it in your schools or classrooms or at home. It's just a useful reminder of our emotional needs which, if they're all being met well, can prevent mental illnesses from recurring or even just a bit of stress. The link to this will be on this podcast page. Um, or you can email Gemma, that's G-E-M-M-A, Gemma at humangivens.com to request a copy. Pat's website is www.westonepsychotherapy.com. So the West is W-E-S-T and then a numeric one, psychotherapy.com. And he's, uh, as we've said, got a range of blog posts, uh, which are really worth having a look at. So we do hope you've enjoyed and found this podcast interesting and useful. Until next time, bye for now.